Go ahead and take out your Bibles, and if you don't have one, there's one in uh, the chairs in front of you somewhere, should be one. And turn with me to John chapter 15, John chapter 15, which is not a typical Christmas text, and yet is going to be our text for this holiday season. Can we go ahead and get these front lights on, please? Um, uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 11. Really, our focus will be 1 through 8 today. As you turn there, let me let you know about a couple of things real quick. Number one, uh, just want to remind you uh, about, um, just kind of give an, a giving update. We're still in the process of transitioning to the new software that we're using. And so um, if, you, if you haven't transferred your giving to that new system, uh, please do so. If you get some warning messages or some, uh, some things that pop up that concern you, please come talk to us. We might be able to give you uh, some clarity on that. Um, I would like to ask this morning if you would consider uh, ab above your normal uh, stewardship of, of God's finances to consider giving to benevolence. Um, we've, got, we've had a lot of needs lately. We have some that are coming up now. And uh, we're running lower on the benevolence fund than we have in a long time. So um, we, we've finally been able to successfully spend most of, of what we have, but the needs are still there. And so would you consider uh, giving to the benevolence fund? And then lastly, uh, in terms of, of giving, we have a giving tree set out behind you and to your left. Uh, there's tags on the tree. There's, uh, the, the families represented there each have three tags, clothing gifts, present gifts, and, uh, and then food, a, a, a Christmas dinner. So if you would consider blessing some of these families, most of whom are connected through either Prospect Point or, uh, or Green Park, it was really fun when we got to do the turkey trot uh, recently. One mom uh, showed up to pick up her, her Thanksgiving dinner, and she was just like, I can't believe my son won. I had no idea how we were going to have a Thanksgiving meal this, this year, and I still just can't believe he he got picked. And so it's just fun to get to see some of those things and, uh, and spend some time with some families in that way. If you take a tag, please don't do so without checking in with Dan. Uh, he's going to take some information. Uh, we need those back by the, the, around the middle of the month. What time we need those gifts back here uh, kind of depends on where they're going. So each tag says when we need to receive those gifts back here by. So consider giving to those. And then lastly, um, tonight, because we're having QMU and there will be a meal, uh, our quarterly ministry update, um, and there will be a meal associated with that. We won't have a potluck tonight at Gathered Prayer, but we will gather right over here in these rooms to your right uh, to, to pray for one another and with one another tonight for uh, about a half an hour. And so I would highly encourage you to come join us for that time. Those things being said, let's uh, turn our attention to God's Word. Jesus says here, in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I think we are all familiar with the, the Christmas saying, joy to the world. We sing about it, uh, we, we want it. But do we really understand what it is and, and how it comes about? What is joy? 
I mean, it's certainly part of the Christmas story. Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men arrive, we see that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel comes to Mary, the word that gets translated as greetings in our English text is actually the imperative mood of the verb to have joy. He's commanding joy of her. In Luke chapter 2, the shepherds are told not to fear because the angel who kind of terrifies them, and I imagine we would all be terrified if angels showed up in the sky above us, uh, announces to these shepherds that he is bringing good news of great joy. All the way at the end of the Christmas story in Matthew 28, when the women depart from the tomb to tell the disciples about Jesus' resurrection, they did so with fear and great joy. But again, what, what is joy? I've heard some people contrast it to happiness, saying, well, happiness is fleeting, and, and joy is, uh, it, it's not that emotional uh, fleeting thing, it's this deep-seated contentment. Uh, so we get this kind of contrast that while joy is permanent, happiness is temporary. There may be some truth to that, because at least in the New Testament, uh, joy is more, less of an emotion and more of a state of being. But in reality, the word just means happy. It just means happy. The angel is telling the shepherds not to be afraid because he was bringing them good news of great happiness. The wise men were happy. Gabriel told Mary to be happy as his greeting. And the women left the tomb with great fear and happiness. If you can't comprehend that connection between fear and happiness, oh, the Bible has some wonderful things for you. Interestingly, the passage we're going to look at over the next five Sundays, in, including today, uh, comes not at the beginning of Jesus' life as we celebrate this Christmas season, the, the birth of Jesus to be the Savior of the world and to save us from our sins, but quite, in fact, the opposite end of his life. John chapter 15 is part of the upper room discourse, which means this is Thursday night of Passion Week. Jesus is less than a day away from being crucified. He's in the upper room with the disciples, and he is instructing them before he will be betrayed, arrested, tried six times over the, the course of one night, and then condemned to beating and death the following day. And he gives these instructions. He's telling his disciples how to be happy. Look with me at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. They say there's no such thing as a dumb question, but I might have one for you. Do you want to be happy? I think most of us do. Like, that's why it's a dumb question, of course. You know, when we're miserable, we want to be happy. I don't know. I met some people who are probably not happy unless they are miserable, but that's a whole other topic. But, but I think most of us say we, would say we want to be happy, and not fleetingly so. Like, happy with a deep-seated contentment. Ha happy that, that, that doesn't require anything else to be added to what we have. And the interesting thing is, as Jesus is about to go to the cross, he's telling us that that's what he wants for us to. But there's something we need to note. And that's that as Jesus says this in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, what he's telling us is that what we need to be happy is not inherently inside of us. Isn't that the great lie of the day? That, that if you just spend enough time in introspection, following your heart, looking inside of you. I like to kind of call it religious navel-gazing. You'll be happy. That's not what Jesus indicates to us. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and therefore, that your joy may be full. What we need in order to be happy, it's not inherently inside of us. It's not even inherently inside anything in this world. 
And think of the burdens that we lay on people. If you're expecting your spouse to make you happy, what an unfair burden to lay on them. Or your job, or your kids, social media, the number of followers you have, your weekend plans, what's on Netflix or YouTube, what's in your bank account. None of those things can provide that. We're we're laying burdens on those things that they were never meant to bear. Jesus wants us to have His joy in us so that our joy might be full. It's sourced from Him. It's given from Him. And He's giving us the directions as to how to access that. Some of them are easy to hear. Some of them are not. Some of them are going to call us to... uh, to trust things that, that maybe aren't inherently, don't inherently seem trustworthy. Uh, th- some of them are going to be countercultural. Some of them are going to be counter-natural. The question before us is this. It's always this. It, it's not so much, do we trust what Jesus is calling us to, to provide us with that happiness? Or do we trust Jesus? Because if he's trustworthy, and I believe he is, then when he tells us things that are countercultural, and if you're thinking I'm only speaking to the current culture, I'm not. They're counter every culture. If we we think that, that our thoughts trump Jesus' thoughts, then ultimately what we find is ourselves to be trustworthy and not him. And so some things may be wonderful to hear, some things may be a little harder. But his first point is is that we cannot be happy, at least not ultimately happy, unless we're connected to him. Of of course, this makes simple sense, doesn't it? If, If what we need to be happy isn't inherently inside of us, if it's in him, then in order to access what we need to be happy, we're gonna have to be connected to him. And as Jesus was a masterful teacher and storyteller, so he teaches us this through this picture of a vine and branches. Uh, Probably what would be thought of here, not too hard for us to imagine, is a grapevine for the purpose of growing wine grapes. And so let's consider four characters in Jesus' story, four characters in Jesus' analogy to teach us about the importance of being connected to him. First is the vine. The vine. We see this in, in verses 1 and 5. This imagery would not have been foreign to the disciples. Um, I have a lot of verses today, so I've put them up there. Um, most of them, I think, not all of them, uh, Caleb, as, as I mentioned some of these, uh, some of them I'll just mention, but if I read them, they should be up there. Psalm 80 verse 8 refers to Israel as a vine that was removed from Egypt and planted in the land that we now call Israel. It's a very common reference, uh, referring to Israel as a vine in Jeremiah 2, Isaiah 27, uh, Jeremiah 12, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 19. And the planting of this vine, the planting of this nation where it was uh, in the land we call Israel today, it it was for the purpose uh, of being a blessing to the nations. It was because God wanted to supply something to the world that he wanted to bring to the world through this nation. It was to be a conduit of God's grace to all people. But that didn't happen. Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Follow along as I read. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And his, as his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Very similarly, we read in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
when I looked for it to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. All of those things happened to Israel, did they not? I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. Last week we talked about that idea of justice being the way we interact with the poor and needy and, and those who, who are uh, unable to care for themselves. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The, these two passages evidence for us that Israel failed at its mission. Rather than being a conduit of God's grace, it attempted to become a container of it. Rather than allowing God's grace to flow through it to uh, of the other nations, it just hoarded all of its goods for itself. The more fruit Israel bore, the more it hoarded its own fruit. And so Jesus gives us a very similar tale in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 43. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent again other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he said, sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will happen to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now before we continue reading, you can see the imagery here. God planted this same vine that we see referred to in Hosea and, and Isaiah, and, and it was to be a blessing to the nations. God's grace was to be a conduit through this nation to all nations. But they hoarded their fruit. And so when God sent them servants, the prophets, to announce to them their wicked ways, they put the prophets to death. And so God sent his son, and they put him to death. They failed in their mission because rather than being givers of grace, they wanted to be gainers of it. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. In other words, those people, a.k.a. you and me, Gentiles, not national Jews, God's given us this grace this message of grace, to be a conduit of it, to, to take it out, to, to do what was needed. But what's needed when the first vine fails? The true vine. And Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, the vine who will never get it wrong, the vine who won't fail to, to, to live this mission out. Now, the true vine was always Jesus. He wouldn't have been necessary if they had it's not that he would not have been necessary if they had done their job. He still needed to come. He still needed to live righteously for us. He still needed to die for us. But they failed at their job to announce that message to the whole world. And so by Jesus telling us that he is the true vine, he wants us to, to see this imagery that he is the source of all things. He is the source of happiness. He is the source of grace. He is the source of everything. Secondly, we're introduced to the vine dresser. Very simply, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. He gives us no instructions other than that. I think Jesus' point here about his relationship to the father is, is that it is one of care. The word here for vine dresser, it's just the common Greek word for farmer. 
the, the reason it's called a vine dresser is simply because of the context of it being a vine rather than a wheat field, say. Uh, but but j- here, Jesus presents to us God as the farmer. And if we draw on all of that imagery, we see that this farmer, this vine dresser, he plowed the ground, he removed the stones, he dug a vat, he, he cared for the soil in the way that it was necessary. And that's the imagery that Jesus wants us to have here. Not only for Israel, God did his part. It wasn't his failure. Oh, don't, aren't we so good at that? Like, like when we disobey God, we're like, well, God, you know, if you would have just done enough, I'd have done something different. It's really your fault, God. But Israel's failure was not because of God's lack of provision. And Jesus, we see here, received the same kind of care from the Father. This care was done, speaking of real plants, in two ways. First, uh, when vines are tended, um, the, the first way vines are tended, rather, is to cut off those that do not produce fruit. One of the things we're going to see repeatedly as we begin to look at parables, as we continue through the book of Matthew in the new year, is that uh, fruit, not foliage, is, is the aim of discipleship. It's the aim of salvation. We don't have any wheat farmers around here. We don't have any wine growers around here who are like, man, I got the best crop you've ever seen. Not a single head of grain, but man, it's a good-looking field, is it not? Well, what are they going to do if that field grows up and produces? In fact, why, after having harvested a field, when all the volunteer wheat begins to grow up, why do they go through the fields and spray it and kill it all? Because it doesn't produce. Fruit, not foliage, is the aim of farming. Fruit, not foliage, is the aim of discipleship. Well, we'll talk more about the implications this has for us. But, but cutting off vines that don't produce fruit ensures that nutrients go to the parts of the plant that do produce fruit. Here he's saying, as we'll hear several times, fruit, not foliage, is the goal of farming. The second way is to prune those branches that did produce fruit. Pruning, uh, which is not cutting off the whole branch, but cutting off portions of the branch that aren't necessary, allowed them to produce more and even better fruit. And, And this is the imagery that Jesus uses to teach us about the final two characters in this story. He has instructed us of divine things, specifically that he himself is the true vine, the source of all things. And his father is the vine grower, and now he is going to instruct us not in divine things, but in people things. And he's going to illustrate this with the image of branches. And there are two types of branches. Now, back to our context, interestingly, both types of branches were present in the upper room as Jesus teaches this the night before he dies. There's the 11, who he says have already been cleansed because of his word. They've already heard the gospel. They've already trusted him. They've already abandoned the things of the world that they thought would make them happy. And as Peter confessed, where else are we going to go, Jesus? You alone have the words of salvation. They had trusted him for, for their forgiveness, for their contentment, leaving even jobs to, to follow him. And then there's Judas, who was not. And so Jesus is speaking in this illustrative way of of the people he has sitting in front of him right there. And, And maybe of us here. Firstly, there are, number three on your outline, there are the branches that abide. And Jesus talks about this in verses 2 through 5 and 7 through 11. He says basically the same thing twice, calling us to pay extra attention to it. And there's a lot of information given here about these branches that abide, so hold on because there's a lot. There are a couple of obvious characteristics about branches that uh, that abide, and though we're not going to take these in the order that they're presented here from Jesus, we are going to talk about them. First off, they do just that. Branches that abide abide. And in fact, I think this may be the main thrust of this passage. The word in some form or another for abide occurs 11 times in these 11 verses. And twice, it's in the imperative mood. It's it's commanding us 
to abide in him, to stay connected to him, to remain, would be another translation of this word, to remain in him. Why must we stay connected to Christ? Well, because apart from him, we can do nothing. He's very clear about that in verse 5. And have you thought about that for a moment? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Is Jesus literally saying that you can't do anything apart from him? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. You don't get another second of life apart from him wanting you to. We get nothing apart from him. This is why, why Paul in Romans 11 says, what can be repaid to him? For from him and to him and through him are all things. Everything we get, every moment we have, it's all from him. But I think there's another layer inside that, and that is that you can do nothing valuable apart from him. That'll drive you to your knees. You can't prepare your children for heaven apart from him. You can't be a witness at work apart from him. You can't properly endure suffering apart from him. Not with any lasting value anyways. You can go to work. You can amass a fortune. And just see what your kids do with it when you're gone. How long? How long will it take after each of us in this room is dead before nobody remembers who we are? How is it that he gives significance to everything that we do? Well, if the goal is for people to remember me, that's fleeting. But if the goal is for people to know Jesus, that lasts forever. We can do nothing of eternal significance apart from him. And so branches abide. abide. He doesn't say you can do little. He doesn't say you can do, well, not quite as much. He says nothing. And so the question for us all is, are you connected in your home, in your marriage, work, parenting, recreation, entertainment? We'll talk more about what it means to abide. Secondly, we see that branches that abide bear fruit. This is ultimately the result of abiding in Christ. What does it mean, though, to bear fruit? And here's where we're going to look at a lot of passages, because Scripture speaks in many ways of what it looks like to bear fruit. Fruit is defined in terms of spiritual qualities. That is, things that don't exist naturally in us, that we need God to be working in us. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the self, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Fruit is defined in terms of corporate worship. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The, the us is the corporate part. This is the same chapter, same context, I mean immediate context, pretty much, where we're told not to forsake the assembling of believers. Because there is a, a distinctly us part. And then one of the things we have to note here is that sacrifice, it's still required. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Did it cost you something to be here today? Does it cost you something to give? Does it cost you something to serve? If it doesn't, then you need to consider what a sacrifice of praise means to God. Because the reality is we're still called to sacrifice. We're still called to, to die to ourselves. This is, this is news, honestly, that I think we should start telling ourselves a lot more. I think, I think maybe there should be four words 
that mark Trinity and our relationships with one another and what we tell each other. This isn't the ultimate thing, okay? Jesus is the ultimate thing. But you know what? I mean, here it is. I'm going to lay it on you. You ready for it? I don't think you are. What if these four words were really common at Trinity? Not just to ourselves. We need that, but to each other. Here it is. It's not about you. It's not about you. Did you like the music style today? It's not about you. Did you like who knows what? It's not about you. It's hard to know if that's a phone or real bells. Like, <laughs> kind of cool though. It's like a very incognito in church cell phone ring. What what if we began telling it? ourselves that that, it, that it's it's not about us now that knife cuts both ways it's not about me and it's not about you it is about jesus and it is about others knowing jesus some for the first time some better but sacrifice is still required Fruit is defined as sacrificial giving for the benefit of others. Romans 15, 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. You see how that's about fruit? Of course you don't. I don't think the ESV did us any favors here. Here's what the Greek says. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them this fruit of you. I will leave for Spain by way of you. Paul calls what they give there this fruit of you or from you. It's, it's literally the fruit of theirs. Philippians chapter 4, 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. There's an interesting thing. We hear a lot of, about churches uh, who are, or people who say, well, all churches want us to do is give money. Well, uh, not entirely. It, it does take money to run the place. But Paul, in Philippians 4, in asking for a gift that would result in the spread of the gospel in the ministry, says to the Philippians, I'm not seeking something from you. I'm seeking something for you. There's fruit there. It's defined generally as holy living. Here's a whole bunch of verses. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Ephesians 5, 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Philippians 1.11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Hebrews 12.11, for the, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's also defined as a harvest of new believers. John chapter 4, verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, certainly he's speaking of himself, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Romans chapter 1, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Which has come to you as indeed, that is the gospel, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. I, I think... All of this that we've seen so far, it adds up to one big cautionary tale for us. And that is that vines, vines are conduits, not containers. They exist to move things from one place to another, not necessarily to, to store things. 
The purpose of branches is to move in nutrients to something else. In other words, the point of your salvation isn't so that somebody else, or isn't so that you might have salvation. It is, but only in part. It's also so that somebody else might. If you're saved, you're saved so that God might use you as a conduit in this place to, to move out the nutrients of grace and righteousness and mercy, not only to the people in this room, but to the world. And what does God do with those who hoard His grace? Are, are you actively working inside the church to help other people inside the church know Jesus better? If not, you're a container, not a conduit. Are you actively helping people who, who don't know Jesus to know Jesus? If not, you're a conduit, not a container. May I remind you at this point that Jesus says this so that your happiness might be full. He's not telling you that to keep you from what makes you happy. He's telling you that to take you there. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, Logan, that's a little scary. Maybe this is one area where we might be able to connect to the idea of the women leaving the tomb filled with fear and happiness. Don't presume that something that's scary might not also lead you to incredible joy. But we're conduits, not containers. This abiding, by the way, it comes with three promises. And I, I'm not going to uh, elaborate these at length, but the first promise, as I've just mentioned, is joy. The second promise, verse 7, answered prayer. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, excuse me, when you're doing what you're supposed to do, Jesus is happy to give you what you need to do it. And then the, the third one is experiencing God's love. No, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves to next week, but there is some overlap. So there are conditions. There are conditions to these three things. To this joy, to answered prayer, and to experience God's love. How many of you showed up today saying, I don't want anything to do with joy, I don't want God to answer my prayers, and I don't want to experience his love? We all came with those hopes and desires, I think. And Jesus tells us that there's some conditions. First, is that you have to be initially cleansed by the word. That comes in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In other words, you have to be forgiven first. You have to have come to Jesus for salvation first. You have to understand that his life and his death have covered all your sins and say, I I'm going to trust you, Jesus, and not me. And so first, in order to access these promises, you have to be saved. You have to be forgiven. You have to be one of Jesus. You have to hear the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and respond by believing. Second, you have to abide. You have to abide in him. How do we do that? Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We abide by remaining in his word. That I, I guarantee you, a Bibleless walk is a joyless walk. A Bibleless walk is a joyless walk. Third, we have to bear fruit and so prove to be his disciples. Verse 8 By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And fourth, verse 10, again, we're getting a little overlap into next week, is obedience. You have to first be forgiven. You have to dig into his word, 
You have to produce fruit, and you have to be obedient. And Jesus says, when you do, there will be joy. There will be answered prayer. There will be a, a, a tangible knowledge of my love. Is it possible for people who are genuinely saved to experience periods of fruitlessness? Yes. 1 Corinthians 3, but brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Revelation 2, 4, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your first love. This church had, had abandoned its love for Jesus. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The, the way John uses verbs in 1 John, it's not, he's not talking about just, whoops, I made a mistake. The, the reason the ESV talks about who, those who practice sin and practice righteousness is because John is using verbs that indicate repeated patterns. I'm writing to you so that if any, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It is possible, I think, for Christians to experience periods of fruitlessness and, and, and a lack of abiding. But fruitlessness in our lives should cause examination, not contentment. Because it may mean that we're part of the second type. And that is, number four, branches that do not abide. What happens to branches that don't bear fruit, obey, produce, and are not abiding in Christ? Well, they get cut off and burned. This cannot be a reference to Christians losing their salvation. John chapter 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Listen to those words again, because this is going to challenge some of our thinking. All... Each, every. That's what that word means, pos. Each one that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And Jesus uses a double negative here. Like, it, it, it's not happening. Jesus will never, ever cast them out, is effectively what he's saying. Here's the reality. Not a single person that has been given to Jesus won't come to him. Not a single person whom the Father has given to Jesus won't come to him. Because all that the Father has given will come to him. And here's the good news. Whoever genuinely comes will never be cast out. Never, ever. This cannot be Christians losing their salvation. This is people who never had it. This is Judas, who outwardly appeared to be attached to Jesus but never actually had any of the nutrients flowing into his life. Jesus teaches of this, us of this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Is that the same passage? I just got it. Yeah, it is. I just need to keep reading split up in my notes. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I imagine there's a challenge for us all here. Maybe Maybe you're connected to the church. But you've never been truly connected to Jesus. It's time to be cleansed by his word. It's time to trust him. I think most of us see pretty clearly that our ways usually don't work out for us very well in, in terms of lasting happiness. can't help but to think of even though it's a little gross the imagery from proverbs that we're like dogs returning to our own vomit i mean think of the imagery there for a moment a dog eats something the dog's stomach goes nope 
That was dumb. It must have been a puppy, right? And it says, no good. And, and it vomits it up. And then what happens as soon as the dog takes one sniff? Smells good. Maybe I can do that again and get a different result. This is what we do with sin. We take it in, but our lives go, this, this doesn't produce anything good. And it spits it back up. And as soon as we vomited that thing up, we go, smells good. I'll try that again. And most of us probably know how Einstein defined insanity. Maybe you're trying everything but Jesus to find your contentment, your happiness, your joy, your peace. The first thing that must be done is that we must be cleansed by the Lord. That is that His life is our righteousness. His death, the punishment for our sin. And therefore, we can live. But maybe, you're, maybe you are a genuine believer, but you're stuck in fruitlessness. You're like, yeah, I, I think I'm genuinely saved, but you know, not, not much fruit here. Not, not much going on of eternal value. I would guess that there's one of, I wrote three in my, my notes, but I would say one of four things is probably missing in our lives. And by the way, none of them are extraordinary. Which is why the church for centuries has called them ordinary means of grace. Because they're very, very ordinary. But if, if you're here today and you're like, yeah, my, my life is kind of fruitless, maybe a little joyless, I would say one of four things is missing. Number one, regular reading of the Word of God. Regular abiding in his word. Number two, regular prayer. Regularly, if you know anything about vines, right, there's, there's two-way transfer. Well, in our spiritual lives, there's two-way transfer. We speak to God, and, and we hear from God. We speak to him in prayer. We hear from him in his word. You can't tell him anything he doesn't already know. Here's the beauty of it. I'll never forget. I was, uh, was a little kid one time, driving through Oklahoma, and um, spent the summer with my uncles in Kansas, and I learned some things about farming. And I was, I was driving, uh, we were driving through Oklahoma, I was with my aunt, and I said something to her that I had learned about these large bales or something out in the field. I was just a little kid. This is how much of an impression it made on me. And I told her what I had learned, and, and she kind of very snidely said, yeah, I know. God's never like that. You can't tell him anything he doesn't know, and he loves to hear it from you. He enjoys hearing from you. Regular Bible reading, regular prayer, regular deep connectivity to the church. And, and I would say this. If there is not regular deep connectivity to the church, yeah, I'm not going to mince words. It's because your priorities aren't God's priorities. It's as simple as that. And evangelism. I think a lot of us feel powerless in our Christian lives. And, and we ignore Acts chapter 1. That you will receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we en don't engage in the thing for which God gave us power. And then we go, why does my life feel powerless? It's because we're not pursuing the things for which he gave us power. When, when you serve others in the church and they call you up, Dad and I were talking about this week, and they're like, I can't believe what you did for me. 
You're like, I didn't do anything. Five loaves and two fish moments where he brought this little teeny thing and he multiplies it to feed 15,000. Or when you share the gospel and you go into the conversation, you're like, I don't know, this is fearful. And the Holy Spirit does what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do, and that is that he reminds us of all the things that, that we've been taught. And if you haven't read the Bible, you probably don't have much for him to remind you of. You can see how all these things are connected. A powerless Christian life, a fruitless Christian life, is one where there is not regular Bible reading, not regular prayer, not deep connectivity to the church, and not regular evangelism. Maybe one of those isn't present. Or, or maybe, maybe another one of our problems is that we, we, uh, we see obedience as something inhibitive. Like, I don't want to have to obey. I, I don't want a legalistic walk. You're, you're telling me that, th- that I have to obey Jesus? Well, listen to what he says here. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. What Jesus is telling us is that he is not, he's not asking us to obey him so that we might live legalistic, loveless Christian lives. But quite the opposite. He's telling us to obey him so that all of those things that get in the way of us experiencing his love might be just that, out of the way. 1 John 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Which one? Which one's keeping you from joy this Christmas season? Not being connected to Jesus? Confess your sin and ask his forgiveness. Not being in the word or prayer or connected to the church or sharing the gospel? Or maybe it's just rejecting the necessity of obedience. The thing that Jesus wants us to know is that these things he has spoken to us, that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be full. Heavenly Father, maximize our joy. Maximize our joy for our good. Maximize our joy for the spread of the gospel and for the good of the church so that others might see our joy in you. Pray that you would use us to call people to faith and to repentance. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, time has clearly gotten away from me, so we're going to move to communion quickly here. If those who would serve would come up and hand out the elements, I would uh, be grateful. reading a book um, reading a book this week about about the world we live in and, and how much of a, a visual culture we live in and and how much we like to see things more than just hear like videos are better than audiobooks and well just about everything's better than a book book right um, we're, we're a very visually oriented culture and there's some danger in that, in that uh, God has not permitted us to worship him with any images, and yet he has given us images, uh, things to see. And uh, in, in communion, he has given us uh, the, the ability to see, in some ways, the effect of faith. I can't help but to, to think of how, it's not very common today, but how uh, people used to speak of partaking of a meal together. And, and when you partake of a meal, you, you take this meal, and, and everybody takes some of it, and they consume it, and well, it's, it's fueling, it's, uh, it, 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 it gives necessary ingredients, nutrients, but it becomes part of you. And I think that's really, in many ways, the imagery of what is presented to us at the Lord's table. That, that the Lord 
as we'll read on the night when he was betrayed, he gave instructions to the disciples. But he is that one bread that often we read about in 1 Corinthians 10. And, and we're all partakers of that one bread. But it's in many ways, as we saw today, an admission that we need something that is not internal to us. In, in the same way that we need food because the nutrients we need for, for life aren't in us, we need spiritual food because what is necessary for spiritual life isn't in us. And so we come to Jesus and we say, look, it, it was your life and subsequently your death as pictured in the elements that we partake that provides what I need spiritually, that provides for my forgiveness, that provides for my eternal life. And so uh, let's keep those images in mind as we partake of these elements, that we're receiving something from Christ that, that is not inherent to us, that we're all doing that together, that we're all connected to him and therefore a unified body in him, but that he is the source of what we need, in, in not only in terms of joy, but in terms of spiritual life. And Paul tells us, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we proclaim your death to ourselves, to the world. That what we need for spiritual life isn't in us, it comes from you. Thank you that uh, by faith we become partakers in your life and death, that it becomes our life and becomes our death, so that when we die in this world, we, we can be with you eternally. Lord, would you, this Christmas season, give us great joy and contentment in the ordinary means of grace. And may we see you do extraordinary things through these very ordinary things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.